Hi everyone, a reading from Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. And this morning we are in our seventh message in our series in the book of Genesis, which we have called Genesis, a prelude. And it's a prelude because we're looking at just the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, and it's a prelude because these first 11 chapters sort of set up the pieces, not only for the rest of the book, but as we've said, also for the, the rest of the Bible. And so we arrive at the Tower of Babel. The people of Shinar, that is Babylonia, had a united vision. They had a noble cause. They didn't want to be split up. They didn't want to be divided as a people. Rather than being scattered over the face of the whole earth, they wanted to stay together in one place as one people speaking one language. And so they set about building this great city. And the architects had a great idea, and they said, let's put a tower right in the center of the city, a tower that will reach into the heavens and be seen for miles around, serving as a symbol of unity for the city's inhabitants. Well, it all sounds rather idyllic. Isn't this the opposite of the strife that we read about between Adam and Eve? Isn't this the opposite of the Cain killing Abel? Is, isn't this the opposite of the days of Noah when the world was filled with violence? Sounds like this would be something that God, or at least a God who is good, would smile upon. And so when we read that God scatters them from there over the face of the whole earth and confuses the language of the whole world, and that they stopped building their tower. Their project comes to a grinding halt. You can't help wondering on first reading, and then perhaps a second reading, what are you doing, God? <laughs> Surely these people were getting it right. But you know, that's how it often is with this kind of story. Those of us who enjoy a good dystopian novel will appreciate the Tower of Babel because this is the original dystopian literature from which all other dystopian literature is born. At first, everything looks perfect, but you spend a little bit of time wandering around Babel's white picket fences and you start asking the locals too many probing questions and you discover that nothing is really as it seems. Spoiler alert. Stepford wives, the Stepford Wives are all robots. 
This paradise has a dark underbelly. It turns out Babel isn't utopia after all. It only seems that way until we realise that God had envisioned something entirely different. Just a few chapters earlier, God has commanded humans to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to cover the earth and rule over it. God imagines a humanity spread across the earth, a proliferation of people and races and cultures in a multiplicity of places and speaking a multiplicity of languages, all of which would reflect the multifaceted image of God. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and rule over it. But instead, these people want to stay in their own safe mode of homogeneity, refusing to spread across the earth, huddling together in one place under one name, monocultural, monolingual. Genesis says that the people of Babel spoke one language and everyone had a common speech. This city had organized itself against God. Back in July, there was an open letter published in Harper's Magazine, signed by several notable people such as uh, J.K. Rowling and Noam Chomsky. Some of you will have seen it. It was titled, A Letter on Justice and Open Debate. A Letter on Justice and Open Debate. The letter lauds the justice issues being addressed, such as the long-needed police reform and, and fight for inclusion and, and equality across society. But the letter also goes on to express concern over language and freedom in the current atmosphere, which is driving for nothing less than ideological, ideological conformity. I'll, I'll just read you part of this letter. The free exchange of information and ideas is daily becoming more constricted. Censoriousness is spreading more widely in our culture and intolerance of opposing views, evoke for public shaming and ostracism and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. It is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. And then they go on to give us some examples. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in a class. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study and the heads of organisations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. Whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the result has been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of reprisal. We are already paying the price in greater risk aversion among writers, artists and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even 
lack sufficient zeal in agreement. The letter goes on to say that the restriction of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. I think this is particularly significant coming from someone like Noam Chomsky, who, as a political dissident, has found himself on the FBI's top 200 enemies of the state and has been the target of numerous smear campaigns. So he understands the tendency of the powerful or repressive governments to use language to coerce society. But he's equally wary, as the letter says, of an intolerant society more like Babel in many respects, where you and I become increasingly uncomfortable just speaking our minds, where we have to sort of carefully measure out everything we're about to say, and where behind every sentence is the implicit threat that if you don't agree with the next words out of my mouth, you're out. The people of Babel spoke one language, and everyone had a common speech. At first it sounds idyllic, on a second, perhaps third reading, it begins to sound sinister. The people of Babel spoke one language and everyone had a common speech. As we reach through the mists of an ancient past, we discover that we're not as actually disconnected from Babel as we may have thought. Our contemporary experience might actually serve as a sort of a window onto the world of Babel, whose inhabitants spoke what might be described as a coercive language. In other words, a language which left little room for saying something else, which had overcome division, but only by doing away with different. They have bought the veneer of peace, but only at the cost of silencing all those other voices until the only voice they could hear was their own. Think for a moment about someone, a relationship, or maybe a set of relationships, maybe a community of people, where you feel the exact opposite of Babel. Just think for a moment, the people in your life, the relationships in your life, the communities that you belong to, where conversation flows freely and uninhibited, where you never feel that you have to self-censor where you listen to each other, where you assign each other good motives, where you trust that you actually do love each other and you believe that you're devoted to each other and you know that you're for each other. So just think for a moment, where have you experienced it? You see, my purpose this morning is not to decry our broader culture uh, and sort of societal trends, but by reflecting on the broader culture through the lens of Babel, I want to ask whether we as a community are any different. You see, for many, the stifling conversation through the control of language is actually a caricature of the church. For, for many people, the church is a place where you couldn't speak freely. The church is a place where they have felt censored, where they have felt they had to extensively edit themselves. Many friends have told me this is why they left the church or could not engage with the church 
in any serious manner in the first place. Now, this is deeply ironic that the church of all places should ever be associated with anything like this. But if the deep irony of this escapes us, then all we need to do is read about the birth of the church in the book of Acts. Because when the church is born at Pentecost, before anyone had ever seen or heard of the church, when the church first emerges into the world, steps onto the stage as this utterly new thing, it emerges not as a replica of Babel, but actually as the very reversal of Babel. Acts chapter 2. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? You see, what happens at Pentecost is not the elimination of the linguistic differences. He doesn't say they all became monolingual. They had the same language and they all had the same speech. They didn't all start speaking Hebrew. They didn't become monocultural. Luke seems to delight actually in listing off all the cultures that were there. That's what he just did, right? And they were not all going to stay in one place. Presumably these visitors to the city would all return to their respective nations. One people speaking one language in one place. No, no, that's Babel. Here, there are a multiplicity of languages and a multiplicity of different people from a multiplicity of different places, yet they now have the ability to hear each other. They now have the ability to understand each other. And they will take back this good news about Jesus to the nations. You see, these passages placed alongside each other invite us to reflect on the importance and function of language in our own community. Language is decisive for the quality of human community, how, how we speak and how we listen, how we speak and how we listen and how we answer. All of this determines how we end up caring for each other. The trouble with so much overzealous PC language and wokeness, as one friend recently observed, is that it doesn't actually make us more compassionate to each other. And I think one reason why it doesn't make us compassionate toward each other is because most of the time it isn't born out of compassion, but out of a deep resentment, which is another theme that we, we looked at a, a, a few weeks ago. On the other hand, the birth of the church, as we read about it in Acts, is characterised by different people who hear and understand each other. 
and with hearing each other and understanding each other come other things. Things that you and I want and desire for our lives. Things like empathy and compassion toward each other. This is the opposite of Babel. And I think one of the responsibilities of the church, of the faithful community, is to maintain a faithful universe of discourse, as Walter Brueggemann calls it. To maintain a faithful universe of discourse against the languages around us which try to coerce and manipulate, deceive and divide. So let me close with these questions. Do we trust Jesus and his command to love over our ability to regulate language and our desire to control? Let me ask that again. Do we trust Jesus and his command to love over our ability to regulate language and our desire to control? Love or regulation and control? Are we working to create an environment where there is real conversation, where we don't feel that we have to self-edit and, and censor all the time, where we just practice listening deeply to each other, where we work just as hard at understanding each other as we do at trying to make ourselves understood? And to go back to what we said a few weeks ago, do we assign each other good motives and do we trust that, do we trust that we love each other? Do we believe that we are devoted to each other? Do we know that we are for each other? Of course, there are forces at work in the world, working to separate us, working to divide us. And, and it, it doesn't matter what party, what race, what nationality, what colour. Many will reject this very message of unity and they'll be contemptuous of our unity. They'll say, oh, you're, you're just compromised. How can you be friends with them? A friend recently told me about a post he'd read where a Christian was calling for unity in one breath after the election, but in the next was judging and condemning everyone who voted for the wrong candidate. And we know, you know, there are Christians doing this from both sides. So I'm thrilled to know that Trump supporters and Biden supporters are together in our church. I'm grateful that agnostics and Christians have found friendship in our church. I'm thankful that black and white people trust each other in our church. This togetherness has nothing to do with shared politics, shared ideology, shared race. It's not about agreement on everything. That's not unity, that's uniformity, that's Babel. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Jesus never said, agree with one another. He didn't say it. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another, not control one another. The controlling language of Babel. Babel's construction came to a grinding halt. That's a good thing. 
This week, think about how you might in some small way, in one specific, particular way, how you might let your own dreams of control come to a grinding halt. What might that look like for you? Because only then, when we let all our dreams of control come to a grinding halt, only then can we really celebrate with the deepest joy the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.